This is Tommy's Outdoors, episode 17. And our guest today is Eleonore Turner from Sea Synergy Marine Awareness Center in Waterville. To be honest, I'm really excited for that episode because uh, it's no secret that I think that one of the missions of Tommy's Outdoors podcast is talk about uh, the need for natural environment conservation, for the wildlife conservation, for habitat protection. And I think that Sea Synergy does an uh, excellent job at uh, raising awareness of those issues and uh, by giving, uh, by allowing and showing those wonderful experiences in the natural environment. Uh, hopefully this will spark the thought in, in people that, well, all that requires protection and all that uh, needs to be protected and preserved for the future generations in order to, you know, uh, our, our children and grandchildren be able to enjoy um, marine environment and the, and the coast and the wildlife and etc. So I think that Sea Synergy does very important job. And um, really, without any further ado, uh, ladies and gentlemen, Eleanor Turner. Hello, Ellie, how Hi. are you? Good, thank you. How are you? With me today, Ellie Turner from Sea Synergy. Uh, thanks for in, for accepting invite to the podcast. Yeah, you're very welcome. I'm very excited to be here. <laughs> Great to have you here. Uh, listen, so let's jump right into it. And please tell us uh, what is Sea Synergy and what it's all about. So Sea Synergy is a marine awareness and activity center that's based out in Waterville in southwest Kerry. Um, we do a lot of outdoor activities and a lot of education, beach workshops, things like that. Mm -hmm. So we were set up uh, only about four years ago in 2014. Um, in the summertime, we have a center that's open. We have a marine exhibit that talks about the amazing animals that you can find off the coastline of Kerry wow. and all of Ireland, really. Um, and we also do beach workshops, summer camps. We've just invested in stand-up paddle boards and kayaks. So now we're doing eco tours on Luc Caron, mm -hmm. which is a beautiful lake that's just behind Waterville Village. A lot of people pass through Waterville without even seeing the lake. So we're hoping to change that now and yeah. draw people more, more people out on the water, they're just, which will be great. They're just looking at their phones. That's yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> so a lot of what we do is to try and reconnect people with their environment and with the nature that they can find around them. So they're not just looking at their phones and driving past and taking a photo. Mm -hmm. They're getting out in it and feeling it and really experiencing the environment that we have here and the amazing, amazing uh, yeah, world that we have. Especially coastal ecosystems. So that's, yeah. that's, that's really unique and, 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 and great. So uh, it's, it's activities. So seasonal yeah. is activities and, and kind of introducing people to, to the environment. And, and what, but I looked at the website and um, there's also some section dedicated to research. Yes, so, so we're getting into research as well. We do a lot of citizen science projects. So mm -hmm. we have a SEAL survey project that's been running for, I think this will be its third year active. And um, we've also worked with or collaborated with other organizations. So I've worked with another organization doing a project looking at ray cases mm. that wash up on the beaches around Ireland. And we're also working, myself and my colleague Lucy Hunt, are mm -hmm. working for a project funded by the EPA. Uh, mm. The title of that project is Co-Designing for Resilience. So we're working with the Sustainable, sustainable Development Goals right. um, and how to get the communities more involved in those and how people can make a change, really. Right. That's, that's great. There is a, there is a, um, 
Shark Trust, I think, Shark Trust UK, they're running a similar program called Great Egg Case Hunt. Yeah, so where, that's... Where you're collecting all those yeah. washed ashore egg cases for rays and sharks. I think there's exactly. two, two species of sharks. So the, dog, the dog, project... Smaller, small spotted the dog lesser shark. lesser spotted dog lesser. fish and then the greater spotted dog fish. So the, the project, the Shark Trust, it runs in the UK. Mm-hmm. The one that I worked for is basically the Irish version of that. So it's uh, started by a company called Marine Dimensions. Um, mm-hmm. And they're working now with the Marine Institute to sort of further the research. That's, that's great. I, didn't, I never know because because I, I I took active part in that great egg case hunt and was always submitting them, the my my findings and the cases because obviously then you need to kind of find out what what species they are and count them and where you found them. I was always submitting that to to uh, Shark Trust, um, but now now I can I yeah. Know, so kind of there is an Irish that. website, so you can just um, search Purse Search Ireland and it'll go through to them. Okay. So yeah, in Sea Synergy, we've started in the last year. We've started looking at the egg cases that we find around Balance Gaddix Bay and just trying to raise awareness for people. So if they go somewhere else, then they yeah. might recognize what's there. Not and be able many to send people it in. know what are they. They're like, yeah. what, is, what are, what are <laughs> We've they? We've had a lot of questions where people come in and they ask why we have dried bats in the window. Mm-hmm. And for, for months, <laughs> I, I didn't understand why why they kept asking about these dried bats because I thought that was a, a completely crazy thing, even mm-hmm. more crazy than having ray cases in your window. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> then I was at, um, with C Synergy, we were very lucky to... Uh, joined the Discover Dairy Nan opening weekend mm-hmm. and there was someone there from the Killarney uh, National Park Education Centre and they uh-huh. actually had dried bats with them oh. and they looked remarkably like these egg cases that I've been collecting for years and was convinced people had lost their minds thinking yeah. that they look like dried bats but actually there there's they a lot like... of similarities so oh, yeah, I had to yeah. eat my own words there and okay, take okay. it back. So so what what species we are, we, are, we have? So we have a two spe- I think we can find two species of sharks and the shark egg cases are distinctly different. They don't have like a like a yes so the the shark egg cases tend to have curly ends on them so the curly ends wrap around seaweed and hold the egg case in place while the little baby shark Mm -hmm. grows inside the ray cases have more distinct what we call horns horns exactly i was gonna say but i wasn't sure if that's the correct terminology they they have one horn on each corner so they're generally sort of a loose rectangle shape yeah Uh, Yeah. and the horns help them to anchor in the sand so the rays would lay their eggs more in the sandy muddy bottoms Mm. and and that's where so so let's let's just go into so the sharks that the we find in cases they're kind of close to the shore living shark so like we said lesser spotter yes yeah, so the dog, lesser dog spotted fish. dog fish is, is it like a proper name is a lesser spotted cat shark so yeah and then the dogfish is like a common they're, they're name two common names for the same yeah. species really yeah and the other one is uh the greater spotted dog shark or catfish as, as some people would call it okay and does it have a does it have a name like a nurse hound i think as um, well that's another species again oh yeah, that's another yeah. species but it would be a nurse hound species yeah okay so this is not the not the um you're, you're testing my knowledge now. Okay. I, as far as I know, mm-hmm. uh, I think that do- the greater spotted dogfish is one of the nurse hound species, but I'll have to check okay. that out. You, pro- you probably <laughs> you probably, you probably like. I'll like this. Oh, God, we're at the limits of what I know about dogfish now. So. No, it's, I'm way out of the limits of what, what I know about it. So, so, but also in Ireland, we have many other species of sharks. We have taupe, we have blue yep. shark. We, yeah. I think we still have uh, parbeagle shark. Yep. Uh, uh, but, but the angel sharks as well we have and those. an angel sharks yeah. which is kind of like a like a ray looks like a like a like um a little bit yeah it's, it's more of a flatter body yeah. shark yeah and a monkfish is monkfish is yeah, monkfish the... is is that one is that one of the species of sharks as well yeah because there's many yeah. fishes there's actually many fish that is called monkfish including the fish that is called 
Ang- angler fish. Angler fish, yeah. And that's called also monkfish. So when someone says like, oh, it's a monkfish, you're like, which, which one? <laughs> I think everyone, it, there's a lot of like confusion with common names. So yeah. we might refer to a lot of different scientific species with mm-hmm. the same common name just to yeah. sort of group them easier. You, you can be good yeah, old Latin it's, it's, name. It's very big. hard to like the, narrow it down. And it's a big part of um, when you're working with communities to try mm-hmm. and figure out what the local lingo is and what people are, like yes. what people would commonly refer to certain species as so that you can communicate with the same sort of yeah. language yeah. yeah so then in the species of ray we have thornback ray yep. which has uh, like a spikes on it we have undulated ray yeah what else do we have so we also have spotted ray um spotted blonde yes. ray and small eyed ray yes and we have two big species of skate the white skate and the common skate yes and and we we I was I was kind of surprised because I thought that skate is more of a deep sea fish. They they would probably live a little deeper, but they the egg cases are still found washed up on the shores. Yes. So we still Big have ones. white skate egg cases washed up around yeah. the the west coast, particularly in certain spots. Yeah. Um. The undulate ray is really interesting because the there's only a couple of nursery areas for those rays around the coast of Ireland that have been identified by the project. Yes. So. Yes. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, and we're not going to say where, but uh, the, these these spots for for uh, undulated ray are really, you know, like a gems for anglers who know yeah, about, about it. Yeah, absolutely. That's a that's a so now is a good, good question because you're obviously working with a conservation or, or in the very conservation minded yeah. person and so on. How what's your perception of anglers and contribution by anglers to the whole you know awareness and conservation is it is it well they 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 doing good job and they're kind of you know with us and and working towards the common goal or is it like more well they just damaging poor fish and sticking hooks into them and they're generally bad guys uh, I think it differs. So most of the anglers that I, I think I've maybe been fortunate that I'm working with a really great group. So I also volunteer mm. with the Waterford Lakes and Rivers Trust. Oh. And that would have been a group that sort of originated from anglers that either lived or visited or worked in the area of sort of recreational fishing in Waterville. Mm-hmm. Um, at the moment in Waterville, there's a huge problem with the sea trout and salmon stocks that run the rivers there. There's been a huge crash. Yes. Um, there's a few different reasons for this. And there's a lot of sort of debate and there's a lot of uh, work ongoing at the moment to try and discover the root causes and how we can really help these fish yeah. populations recover. The farmers getting all the blame. The farmers get a lot of blame. Um, the fishermen get a lot of blame. But I think mm. that uh, we're, we're lucky in, in where we are and that a lot of people are sort of coming together across those boundaries mm-hmm. and opening conversation and actually starting to, to look for real answers rather than finger pointing and blaming, which yeah. is sort of backwards and not really helping yeah. anyone at the end that's, of the day. That's a, that's a, that's a great point. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm an angler for for many years and the same same thing is uh, going on in hunting that actually uh, what I found so far is that the hunters and anglers are people very aware about environment and because they, they, they are the people who are interacting with that, with yeah. nature with environment and mm-hmm. they can that, that's what we found really with the, the Lakes and Rivers Trust. It was the, the anglers and the gillies out on the lakes that were there every day that first saw the problems with the sea trout and saw yeah. the changes in the populations and, and how the numbers were dropping year on year. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was really them that raised the alarm. And, and without their knowledge, their really intimate knowledge of the area, 
being able mm-hmm. to draw these conclusions without having to do, you know, a two to three year scientific study to prove it. Yeah. They can tell you from their experience and which could be 20 to 50 years of experience fishing on that lake. Yeah, they can give you really solid information about what's going on in a long term basis with the fish populations there. Yeah. Which is really important then to inform where we can direct more conservation efforts and, and how to make the most out of the few resources that we have really mm-hmm. without pouring a lot of money into something that's not going to make a change yes yes and uh do you found that there's a the, the angling for ray and shark is 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 kind of popular um, um among anglers my knowledge of angling of ray and shark wouldn't be huge mm-hmm. i know um around Trilly they have a festival every year but they they actually yeah. tag some of the fish so that's yeah. again informing the the sort of scientific studies and the conservation methods so you are starting to see a lot of people working together again and then sort of crossing those boundaries mm-hmm. whereas historically we would have had clashes now there's yeah. more of a community effort yeah what i found out that that, that uh, dogfish or or small spotted cat shark or lesser spotted cat shark is like probably the first fish that anyone will catch who tries to fish from the shore yeah they're it's, they're everywhere really they're one of the most common species i think and, yeah. and they're they're quite um what's the word for it uh they're pretty tough you know they they survive mm-hmm. in a lot of different situations and then they can survive a lot of sort of abuse and and yeah, yeah they they sort of survive in places where other fish would have already been sort of fished out or pushed out yeah. so yeah. yeah yeah they're they're pretty easy to catch for people i think they're... i was i was so surprised when i found them in a like in a supermarket in a in in poland actually that was like not in Ireland, in poland so like well i know that fish it's like I would never have thought about eating it, actually, but I was, you know, so so that that was that was surprising, but I think that among the anglers, the fishing for ray is is especially, especially for for kind of rare species of ray like a like a blonde ray or undulated ray, is is kind of very highly regarded. Someone who can catch those fish and they're 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 a good sport, I guess. Mm, well, I, I guess it's more about the, the sport of the fish there mm. and then how difficult it is. It's obviously going to be the prize then for the angler that manages to catch mm. it. Yeah, yeah. And obviously they're, they're, they're released. And, 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 and again, I was, uh, uh, I, I know the, the, the Chinese guy and, you know, I went fishing and I caught uh, a few uh, thornback rays, right? And obviously I, I, you know, catch and release, releasing the fish. And then I'm talking to my friend and the Chinese guys, like, where's the fish? Where's the fish? And he proceeds to explain that, you know, how you, how you should prepare the ray and like, well, why did you release that fish? Like, so yeah. again, like I would never think that this is actually something that you're going to eat. And it's, like, it is, it's remarkable. And I think in, in some, in some areas in Ireland, we have had catch and release for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a real benefit because it, it makes a huge difference. It still gets the people out on the water. It still gets mm-hmm. them the experience of angling, but then essentially we're not removing the fish from the water so we're not really yeah. overly damaging that population yeah. there's a few areas in ireland where we have been asking for catch and release for several years based on information of declining populations um mm-hmm. particularly down in southwest Kerry, as i was talking earlier about the the sea trout and the salmon fishery yeah um, and it's only this year that inland fisheries have recommended a, like a no catch zone around the bay there from i think it's lamb's head to uh bolus head Right. So for, for which for for salmon and trout. Yeah, for the sea trout. So they're mm. they're protected. Well, hopefully they will be. It will, it will, the recommendation will be followed through on, and they'll yeah. be protected. And how? Because you... up until last year, people were catching and killing fish on the lakes, even though the common knowledge was that the populations had massively declined. Yeah. Yeah. And what do you think? What were their expectations? And how many years it will take to stars to see? 
you know rebound of the population to to improve the population yeah. again are um, there any pr- that, any that's any a prognosis? really difficult question uh, there's a, a lot of issues that are arising there i mean we're we're seeing at the moment with the water temperatures even the mm-hmm. wild fish in the streams at the moment are struggling because the water temperatures are so high yeah. just because of the weather that we're having and there's not much anyone can really do to change the weather and mm. um, we also have issues with the the salmon farms and sea lice uh, yes. a lot of people believe that's causing a big issue Uh, And then, of course, with things like land reclamation and and over-fertilization of areas adjacent Mm. to these these water bays, um, that's causing problems within the lakes as well and the rivers that are causing... Are there many fish farms, like salmon salmon farms in, in Ireland? Um, there, there's farms. a lot sort of inshore salmon farms so they'd be around the coastline um, they ha- keep the salmon in nets so the, the one closest yeah. to Balance Gaelic's Bay is just off the two islands called Scariff and Deanish mm-hmm. um, I think that's been in operation since 2010 it was oh. previously in operation it was uh, closed for a few years and then reopened again right. um, but all up the west coast really all around Galway and, and Donegal you find salmon farms so yeah, they, yeah. yeah, I don't want to get you in trouble for asking that <laughs> question but what's your, what's your take on because Uh, you know, I make no secret. I think that the fish farms are incredibly damaging to the environment, and and even the quality of, of fish that is raised and then consumed. It's, you know, I have a I have a friend who worked on the salmon farm for many years as an ichthyologist, as a scientist there, and he doesn't eat salmon. And you know, we were out fishing on the charter boat, and uh, and uh, the skipper said like, well, so you don't eat salmon? I said, no, no. Oh, because of all the shy that goes into them. I was like, like precisely. Yeah, I think that it's not a perfect system. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of problems with it. And and from the research that I've read and the, the information that I have from people, uh, the biggest one of the biggest issues is, is what's sort of spreading out of those nets. So yeah. there, there's an awful lot of food. They have to use a lot of chemicals because of the number of fish that are contained in a small space. Precise. And that, again, has knock-on effects in the wider environment. Yeah. Then there, there's different things like the, the currents around the coast that come into play and, and where all of those excess nutrients and excess chemicals are being washed out to mm. and what effect they're having in our wider coastal environment. Yeah, yeah. A, a lot of that is it can be quite damaging in areas. Yeah. Um, particularly now we're seeing a lot of research coming out that's pointing to the sea lice on the salmon farms as being the cause of the sea lice problems with our sea trout populations and yeah you know that that's there's a pretty strong link being drawn there between the salmon farms and the sea lice issues and yes, so there's no doubt there's no yeah, doubt about there, it i think we will eventually see a change in how the salmon farms are being managed and run moving probably to a more closed system where the nets aren't open to the wider mm-hmm. ocean yeah it's it's kind of the same kind of in the same category as a as a factory farming for for cattle The animals are very crowded, and to keep the the spread of diseases and and so on in, in check, you need to use either antibiotics, or just spraying. You know, like in I think in in Norway they're just spraying pesticides, straight up they're spraying pesticides yeah, into the into the the nets. Th- that's uh, the issue with the salmon farms. I think is the for for them to be viable economically, you have to have a certain number of fish in those nets or it's yeah. not really worth having them out there in the first place. Mm. But then of course when you put that many animals into a small space, you're sort of increasing the risk of of pest of pests and parasites and viruses and all kinds of mm. things like that. Um So I think it, there there's definitely issues with them. I know that the salmon farm off Deanish is actually an organic salmon farm. Okay. But again, uh, that's not a perfect system because mm-hmm. of the, the limitations put on them then in using 
uh, certain chemicals to treat the sea lice, they're restricted in how much they can use. So right. their sea lice problem may not be as under control as a non-organic salmon farm. Okay. Because to keep their organic status, they have to maintain yeah. a certain level. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because those pesticides, all that, that goes to the to the fish flesh, and then then exactly, when you yeah. eat that, so that's that's um, that's interesting. Um, I heard also that with the they quite often fish farms are being perceived as a solution for overfishing and overfishing is something that I, that I want to touch in a second but actually for a one I I don't I'm probably going to going to going to screw up the numbers now but for one ton of fish produced in a fish farm there is like 5 or 10 tons of fish removed from the ocean to make the feed for the for the yeah. fish so so fish farms is actually changing like a small fish sprat and so on so somebody else can eat salmon so in fact the fish farms are contributing to overfishing not the, the, the way in in some circumstances yeah I've, i've read similar numbers myself i haven't read uh, any of the research that backs up those numbers but mm-hmm. i've seen the headlines that are, are claiming those figures um And I think you think you have to look at any sort of uh, agriculture or aquaculture with the they're the same sort of concepts in that you're raising a huge number of animals that wouldn't normally live in those confined spaces. Mm-hmm. And you're trying to create a high body weight so that they're highly saleable. Mm-hmm. And that, of course, has to be fed something. So the food has yeah. to come from somewhere, you know, and, yeah. and the fish meal is, is an issue then because we're taking fish from the ocean, creating fish meal and feeding it back to the salmon so that we have a, a nice pink salmon on the plate, mm. whereas maybe we could just eat the fish that they've caught and turned into fish meal in the first yeah. place. So it yeah. wouldn't have such an ecologically damaging effect. Yeah. But we're seeing that same sort of effect all over our agricultural systems at the moment. Really, um, With this dry spell, particularly after such a wet winter, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of the dairy farms and cattle farms in Ireland are struggling because we just don't have the feed to actually feed the animals in, on the land that we have. Yeah. We've sort of overstocked, basically, mm-hmm. without having the backup of enough feed to f- keep that livestock going. So. Mm-hmm. It's it's a problem. So it's a common, yeah. so it's a common problem. And are these issues that that you guys are trying to educate public in in sea synergy, or is it like too sensitive and you kind of? We do so. We do talk about things like overfishing. We do talk about salmon farms. Um, our our ethos really is to just give people the information. We're not there to sort of campaign or shove things in people's faces. Mm-hmm. We want to give people a meaningful experience in nature to try and help them reconnect with nature. Yeah. And hopefully through that process, then they'll develop more of a sort of a sentiment for what they're doing. And, and, and start then, asking questions themselves. Exactly. Of, hey, increase, how can I protect yeah, that? To yeah. increase their awareness. And then that has a knock-on effect in how their day-to-day behaviors transpire. You know, they'll start to think about things like, Oh, if I get this coffee, where's my cup going? Or do I want a plastic fork with my chips? No, I think I'll be okay. And, and those little actions have a cumulative effect when everyone starts to make the same action. You know, eventually mm-hmm. you've got change on a huge scale. So yeah. with Cease Energy, that's really what we do. We're, we're more about education than campaigning. I mean, we mm-hmm. obviously will sign petitions at the moment. We're trying to work out with Plastic Free July. We've gone around to a few different cafes asking them to uh, offer discounts for people using reusable cups and move away from the plastic cutlery, stop giving out plastic straws, simple actions like that. So we, we do try and get involved as much as we can. But when people come to us, we're not really there to sort of attack them or brainwash them or anything. We, mm-hmm. we just want to start a conversation. You know, we want it to be about education. We want to help them 
understand what's going on in the wider world um, and start to appreciate what they have on their doorstep. We find a lot of people are, they've been diving in Indonesia and it's amazing. And then they come here and we say, oh, you can go diving here. Or, you know, they've been whale watching in Canada and we're like, we've got whales here too, you know, and we're trying to get them to appreciate what Ireland has to offer. We've got an amazing coastline. We've got a huge amount of biodiversity, particularly in our oceans. Yeah. And for a large part, we've got really clean environments. So there's a lot to be seen out there. So it's, We're trying to encourage people to get out there and explore and see what they can find. That's a, that's a that's the best way. That's the best way yeah. to get people interested in 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 an environment, and then they naturally start start. There's there's many things that uh, you you touch on. So first of all, on the on the plastic and the big issue in plastic, I think it's great that the whole campaign and awareness is really getting momentum. In in I think in the past two years. Yeah, in the past two years, we've seen a huge leap. I think that David Attenborough and Blue Planet had a lot to do with that. I think a, a lot of my peers who I would have had conversations with before about issues like plastic in the ocean and microplastics and microbeads, a lot of it would maybe have gone over their heads or mm-hmm. they, they just didn't have something tangible to didn't sort of think about it. How yeah, bad you know, is they, it? they sort of listen to me and then go, Eleanor's off on one again. <laughs> How do we change the conversation? Mm-hmm. Um, but then when it came out in the media, you know, there's um, Sky Ocean Rescue. Mm-hmm. The Blue Planet 2 was a huge sort of uh, statement campaign that really opened a lot of people's eyes to the extent of the problem. We've had a lot of research from Irish researchers, particularly in Galway, and uh, I think it's GMIT, have been working on microbeads in coastal waters in Ireland and finding that they're actually in our shellfish. Mm-hmm. And there's another study that's looking at microplastics in freshwater fish species in yeah. Ireland. So we're finding them everywhere. You know, there's someone told me a, uh, a statistic the other day. I think on one study, 75% of the deep sea fish that were surveyed had microplastics in their stomach. So if the microplastic can get to the bottom of the ocean, you know, you're talking about 4,000 uh, miles below or 4,000 meters below the sea. Mm-hmm. It can get anywhere, you know, it's 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 absolutely everywhere. It's pervasive now. So that's yeah. really the biggest problem that we're facing. And I think as more people are aware of it, the more people are making changes. You know, it's becoming more common to take your cup with you rather than just yeah. get your plastic cup and throw it away after. Yeah, ex- so. exa- exactly. Or, or or start using, uh, you know, materials like yeah. metal and wood. and, and Exactly. And, and you know, and a nice stainless steel cup can last you an awful long time, yeah. whereas a plastic beaker is going to break pretty quickly and yeah. end up as a disposable item again yeah and then up in the, in the ocean and in and in the ocean so actually the volvo ocean race has had a huge sustainability campaign this year as well and my colleague lucy hunt worked with those as um sustainability education manager mm-hmm. so she would have worked a lot on educational materials yeah. talking about your plastic footprint and the issues of plastic turn tight on plastic the, exactly the yeah, the unfortunately they didn't team, fare so. too well i think they were last or bad last yeah they, uh, did. <laughs> they, they, they didn't come in first anyways but no. they made a big change <laughs> with their yeah research. yeah i suppose yeah, that, was, that was that was that was the main main purpose yeah, of, of, the, of the team yeah. to campaign and 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 i think they had a lot of support from volvo ocean race I'm, I'm, a I'm, huge I'm, amount yeah absolutely so it was every team i think had some sort of sustainability ethos this year which mm-hmm. was fantastic to see and the you know the scope of their message really they've been all around the world talking about this issue of plastic in in the yeah. ocean so there's thousands and thousands of people now that are much more aware of it that might not have come into contact with it before yeah. which which is really great to see there's there's that, yeah like i said it's great that that that, that campaign and the awareness is, is getting momentum okay let's wind back a little bit um you were talking about uh catch and release and um 
What's your take on, so we, we, we started about talking about uh, fishing and, and the anglers and, and obviously we missed one species of ray. I don't know if it's a ray, it's a stingray. Is it like formally as, as a ray? But, it, there, there but is, they not, yeah, there not breeding through, through, in, a, through yeah, eggs. Yeah, so they just, they like, they have live young rather than lay eggs. So the, the yeah. project, I'm, I'm really good on my egg laying rays <laughs> and the rest of them have sort of passed me by because I was so focused on these eggs. Yeah. But yeah, we do have stingrays around, around Ireland. I think there's yeah. a couple of species of them but oh really i'd have to check the, the, the know names that. i don't know off the top yeah, of my yeah, head yeah, the yeah, names yeah. but yeah and this is also there. changing because you know quite a, i think there was with a species of skate that not not long ago we thought that there's like one species of skate and then there was like no actually there are two species of two separate species so that's of skate. actually the the common skate and i'll never remember the two so they before we used to say just the common skate yes. and then through genetic testing we discovered that it's actually two separate species mm -hmm. uh one i think we call the flapper skate as the common name and then the other one has escaped me i can't remember what it's called yeah i think i i i, I think that's that's exactly it yeah yeah, yeah. So, so that's this is so okay. So that's that's about the stingray people. Just be careful with the stingray. They have, they, <laughs> be they, careful they, with stingray. I think you're more in some areas. You're more likely to come across things like um, weaver fish that live in the sandy mm -hmm. shores. Yeah. Um, it's more common that people would see those and actually get yeah. stung by the weaver fish than yeah, encounter yeah. a stingray. But well, I mean, when you're fishing for and, and you. And oh you yeah, if you're a, fishing, and, be careful. And, yeah, be careful. <laughs> you unhooking and the, and the stingray Absolutely, is, is yeah. not happy. It's and pretty. No, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty pissed. At I'd you. rather not be in a boat with a stingray. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so um, another great species of fish and classic sport fishing is bass fishing and, and for sea bass. We have a, this, this wonderful fish, sea bass in, yeah. in Ireland. This year, so for our listeners, there was a massive collapse of the stocks of fish. And then Ireland introduced a bylaw that prohibits sale of uh, bass so the, all the bass that we see in, in again in shops and restaurants, there's there's a farm bass from Greece, most likely. Irish bass cannot mm -hmm. be sold. So we had that bylaw and then the population rebuilt, rebound. But over over the recent years, and then again that goes mainly through the reports from anglers, the population seems to be, well, either collapsing or as much less yield, mm -hmm. I suppose is the word. Uh so this year, um is a total ban of taking fish. So to that point, it was uh, closed season. I think was somewhere in the in the in the, in the uh, summer months. Yeah. I think from the fifteenth of June to fifteenth of July. I think so. Yeah. I would, and so and, we stuck and, on the exact dates there. But <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I had to know them. Be, oh <laughs> yeah, I was, I'm not much of a fisherman. Yeah. So, <laughs> so anyway, uh, and then there was a bag limit of two fish, right? Yeah. This year, it's complete. Ban, it's, it's yeah. banned, it's it's catch and release on, on, on a bass. Can you tell us anything on, on your, you know, on your take on, on that issue of bass stocks and, and, and fishing for bass and, you know, commercial fishing for bass? Because in the UK, they're still being commercially exploited. Right. So, so is, does it, does it, is, you think is a good thing? Is it, does it make sense? Um, well, I think that given the collapse of stocks, I think a, a limit on fishing makes sense. So I, I suppose a complete ban really is a, a population that's under that much stress. Really a complete ban is the only way to mm -hmm. it's, ensure a recovery of that population. Yeah. Um, but you mean complete ban on, on fishing or complete ban on taking fish? On, on taking the fish. Right. So yeah, on taking the fish. Uh, it, it depends what different fish 
species. I'm not uh, great on bass on how, what their recovery mm-hmm. rate is after mm-hmm. being caught. So some fish would be very susceptible to stress, which yes. means that even if you're catch and release, you're still stressing that fish and chances are it, it may not survive or it may not re- That's stingray, by the successfully. Way. That's stingray, by the way. Very fish is, is very the small recovery rate because yeah, they, they're getting they're very, very stressed. very sensitive, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, so it depends on the individual fish species. Um, I think largely that it... A population under stress needs to be protected. Yeah, I, I think we're sort of at a loss in Ireland. What might improve the situation is having areas like no take zones mm-hmm. or marine protected areas, mm-hmm. something like that, where there's an area that we know the fish can breed safely in. These are are used in other areas of the world, and they're proven to be very successful. Within a rate of a couple of years, you're seeing recovery of the population within the no-take zone, and then that begins to overspill and replenish stocks outside of that no-take zone. Mm. So I think the like for Ireland, uh, I think the long game that we need to start playing is, is looking at solutions like that that are long-term solutions. I mean, a, a no-take or a complete ban on fishery is it's it's really what's the word it's it's completely total do you know it it really mm-hmm. closes people down to even interacting yeah. with the environment whereas yes. a marine protected area then it gives a huge opportunity for engagement of the communities around that marine protected area it, it gives people a vested interest you know it invests them in what's going on gives them ownership of the problem and rather than taking away from them and saying no you can't fish anymore we're mm-hmm. saying you can look after this one area and we can see then over the space of time the stocks recovering yeah. And and then you're seeing a longer term solution and you're also gives you this great opportunity for education. So in the future, we're not going to come up against the same problems again and yeah. again and try uh, the same solutions uh, and end up on the vicious cycle. I heard the on. only thing that we learning from history is that we're not learning from history. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No, but, you know, I actually I actually wrote a blog uh, about catch and release and, and sort of about my. Uh, evolution of my take on uh, catch and release because you know I was I I never I was never subscri- I, I couldn't ever subscribe to approach like oh catch and release is you know your ethical angler and your ethical this and that and like well no this has nothing to do with ethics it's just a, it's a conservation measure um, but I I found it um, kind of baffling uh, that a lot of anglers there obviously giving out the fishing stocks or it's not what it used to be. We don't have fish or whatever. But then when measures like, you know, catch and release only or something gets introduced, there's a big pushback on that. I say, oh, you know, you, you, which I'm finding a little bit strange because, you know, I, I don't mind having, you know, not go catching fish at all for a year or two years. I think that the big issue is that, that just around the uh, Great Britain, the bass is still commercially exploited. So giving the, the amount of fish removed from the environment by the commercial fishermen compared to anglers is just, is, there's no comparisons. Yet this group is like, no, you cannot take fish at all. But these guys are like, well, yeah, work away. Yeah, I think I think in a lot of areas, there's a huge conflict between commercial fisheries and anglers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that does come from the separate rules that seem to apply. Yeah. And I don't really know what the solution to that could be. Mm-hmm. Um, I think with the way that Ireland has managed its fisheries, its commercial fisheries, we've had we've seen huge problems. And I don't mm-hmm. think that that was oh. very well handled. You know, I, I think that there is a lot of Irish fishermen who have really suffered by from decisions made. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really don't know what the answer is to sort of uh, breach that gap between the anglers and the commercial fishermen. But I think it, there, it's always going to be there. And um, 
where where we're working down in Waterville, we do we do see a lot of that sort of pushback against the catch and release and things like that. And mm. um, from anglers, from from some anglers, yeah. Oh. And it's I think it's a little bit of it. I think is to uh, with regards to ownership. So they've been fishing those waters for X number of years, and then someone comes in and tells them, "Oh no, you can't do that anymore." Right. And it's a little bit of like, you know, we're the ones that were my telling spots, you there's a my problem. Marks. <laughs> yeah. And Back to off. a large part, it's a bit like, well, we were the ones that first let you know that this problem was here. And now you're, you know, kind of coming down with the iron fist and saying, no, you can't fish mm. or, you know, no, you have to do this or that or the other. Um, I think a lot of this stems from bad communication between the, the government bodies and the regulatory bodies that are involved and the communities on the ground that are working day to day in these areas. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's a big gap there that needs to be filled, really, with regards to communication and sort of the collaboration between those two groups. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of the pushback and the conflict that occurs when these measures come in could be mitigated or completely um eliminated by having better communication between absolutely between the regulatory bodies and the communities and working more in conjunction with each other over a time frame rather than the only interaction being a well printing catch and release in this lake now thanks lads goodbye <laughs> yes yes exa- exactly because that's a lack of dialogue and this is lack of exactly, lack, yeah. lack of you know even even understanding the the issues you know i, I to, to be honest i'm finding these sort of um relation where the conservation and economics and social aspects are involved incredibly fascinating because they're so complex and i mean like same same thing goes with hunting and with the relation you you know if you if you talk about the hunting in africa there's there's also Mm -hmm. you know you you have quite polar opposite you know very emotional you know people and while start diving into that and like really what is the relation between between hunting and the local communities and the population of animals and sustainability yeah. and poachers and when you look at all these elements together it's like so complex it's, it's, it's complicated it's, yeah it's, 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 it's a really it's a really difficult picture to make sense of i think and mm-hmm. and once you get down into actually dealing with the people you're talking about individual emotions and opinions and things and it's very hard to sort of separate that out and come out with a solution that actually suits everybody. Yes. I mean, there is examples worldwide of situations where an environment has been managed and it's successfully being managed sustainably and for the benefit of all the the stakeholders. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, my brother told me earlier about um, grouse hunting in Scotland. Yes. So the areas that are managed there for uh, an organized hunt are actually mm-hmm. uh, healthier, ecologically speaking, than the yes. areas that have been left life fallow because... The uplands mm-hmm. have to be managed in a certain way to create the habitats required for for all of the biodiversity that could live there. Yeah. And if they're left abandoned, then you end up seeing invasive species taking over or just certain sort of scrub species taking mm-hmm. over that are reducing the overall biodiversity and the ecological health of the area. Well, so there has to be a solution that can be found. It's just a case of, I think, getting everyone on, on the same page and, you know, working towards the same goal is, is yes. the first hurdle that needs to be. Yeah, but the, be the agreeing what the goal is actually and and yeah, you, you brought yeah. the example of scotland i think that scotland is also very very interesting in the whole issue of deer in in scotland where where actually people who are interested in deer and, and sort of management and protection of deer are hunters while you know uh ecological organizations and greenies so to say they just want to kill all the deer they just don't want a deer and, yeah. and it's like well are you not supposed to be kind of pro-animal right and then you have a groups of animal welfare then and there's like all 
just just big it's, yeah, big it's mess. It's a huge struggle. It it really is a huge struggle. I think um Kleine National Park is another good example of that where we're seeing a huge population of deer again. Mm-hmm. Um because there's no natural predators. So the the deer are free to, you know, take over, their populations can expand. No one's managing the population effectively. Mm-hmm. Um so it has to be sort of a, a continuous process, you know, if we're going to remove all of the the main predators of an animal, then mm-hmm. we're going to have to replace those on on the you know the the eco to finish the ecology of the yes. area really there Ex- has to be that top predator so exactly i think it's it's a really complex issue and like you've mentioned there's so many players with different viewpoints that it's it's really complicated to get down into the nuts and bolts of it and say like can we like put our emotions aside and mm-hmm. think objectively about what is best for this environment and how can we as people start to work towards that goal exactly. rather than you know take a standpoint and never let that go and yeah. and yeah not be able to communicate with other groups in the same area that's, because you're holding on to your opinion too exa- tightly exactly and people are often getting very entrenched in their opinions it's like you know that this is like yeah. i know and funny thing you know funnily is that Often the people who have the strongest opinions are people who are probably the most detached from well actual issue what the actual issue is. Yeah, and I find I'm I'm doing a, a PhD at the moment as well. That's it's looking at community engagement in coastal mm. biodiversity management. Okay. Um, and what I'm finding is that the people on the ground really have sort of the best. A local knowledge you know like like they, they'll have spotted things quicker they'll um have better historical or like more accurate historical records of their backyard right? exactly you know you, you you talk about a farmer in his land you're talking about his backyard he's out there every day you know he knows what birds he's seeing you know he knows what year that tree was cut down you know he knows how long that hedgerow has been growing there yeah. because his, his dad or his granddad probably taught him you know there's there's a exactly. wealth of knowledge going back generations within our agricultural communities and within our, our fishermen and our seafaring communities. And I think that mm-hmm. um, working forwards, I think it, we need to start harnessing that and sort of working that into more of a traditional um, management system. So, I mean, a lot of our farmers now are, are moving back towards more traditional methods mm-hmm. rather than intense agriculture because we're actually discovering that they really did know best when they were managing the land within their means and within really? the means of that land. And what benefits they're, they're finding by going back to the traditional methods? Uh, but the, there's less... Um, So it's less sort of, what's the word? Uh, so the the biodiversity benefits to start off with, um, mm-hmm. there's a lot more differences. So traditionally in Ireland, we would have had a lot of mixed farming mm-hmm. and they would have only ran enough cattle or sheep or whatever that they were running that their land could support. So there was very mm-hmm. little buy-in of, of external energy yeah. sources. So they, they yeah. wouldn't have been shipping food from the UK, for example, yeah. it wasn't just wasn't possible at the time. So they sort of ran with what they could supply on their land. And then there's a lot of systems, like, for example, in the Burren, where they winter the cattle on the highlands rather than mm-hmm. have them down in the sheds. And that's actually better for the environment there. Mm. Um, and they're seeing a greater biodiversity and a much healthier ecosystem on those on that environment and that going back to their to the traditional the management okay methods. and so that then transforms also the quality of of of, of meat yeah or, so or, you're, or, you're getting back into sort of more organic free-range grass-fed produce that that's mm-hmm. probably overall healthier because the cattle aren't as contained so reduces your antibiotic use and different things like that that, that can have an effect sure sure oh well, that's great that's that's great and and look i think that's you know absolutely fantastic that that um initiative like you guys are doing it's, it's out there and educate people 
Did you also educate people about the species of open water sharks, like the blue sharks? And uh... We touch on it. Um, uh -huh. A lot of people, I suppose the kids are always really into sharks. So they've all come in and they've seen these amazing documentaries of, you know, like great white sharks. And am I going to get eaten by a shark if I go mm. out in a boat and all that kind of stuff. So, of course, we'd mention them. Um, but really, I think when it comes down to it, the essence of what we do is, is really sort of seashore based. Right. So we really take the kids down onto the beach. Inshore. We, yeah, we give them a chance to explore what they can find. So the idea is that when they go away after having their two-hour workshop with us or doing mm -hmm. their week-long summer camp, they can go and identify animals on the beach. You know, they can they can tell their friends, they can tell their parents, and they can also sort of talk about the problems that we're causing in the ocean, but in a yeah. meaningful way. You know, it's not like oh, stop using plastic. And we've had kids come back and say like, oh, I give out to my mom last night because she put the cup in the wrong bin. And, mm -hmm. you know, you're really sort of inspiring them to take ownership of their impact on the environment. And great. it starts with what they recognize. So I think taking them onto the beach and getting them to dive a little deeper of what's going on in the seashore starts to expand their interest and sort of feeds their natural curiosity as kids right. to start exploring and finding out a little bit more and a little bit more every day of what's going on and, and what mm -hmm. they can find out. Yeah. We do also, like, because we to the southwest coast we've got amazing whale watching opportunities so we do have observers join us and go out on one of the skeletics boats yes uh, to take observations of any whale or dolphin species that we see and what what whale dolphin species we, we you know the more so just today actually um we saw uh, the guy john o'shea who does the skeletic trips from bonavala in mm -hmm. caradaniel mm -hmm. um he spotted two humpback whales Oh. Yeah, so we've been, last year we would have had, a, I think there was five or six humpback whales around for quite a long period during the summer. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're on their migration route. So as they're traveling past us, heading up towards Iceland later in the year, mm -hmm. uh, they feed along the coastline here. So we get a lot of humpback whales, uh, minke whales, um, and some fin whales as well. All right. And what are they feeding on the sprats? Uh, yep, yeah, yeah sprat, or sometimes they're showing mackerel as well, depending oh. on the size of them. Yeah. Um, We also have common dolphins, tons and tons of common dolphins. Yeah. Um, they're like my favorite because they're so playful. I really like mm -hmm. how they, they'll come straight over to the boat and start bow riding and you can hear them like whistling and clicking to each mm -hmm. other. They seem always like they're having a good time. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think if I'm going to come back as a dolphin, I'd be a common dolphin. Um, we've, we've seen Rizzo's dolphins as well. I actually personally have never seen a Rizzo's dolphin. So I'm hoping to get out on the boat this year and spot some. Mm -hmm. um, but we've recorded those earlier this year as well. And of course, bottlenose dolphins. Right, right. Yeah, they they would be the most common species. That yeah, we find. and they're they're you know very often when you're out uh, on the boat offshore, you also see the like a you know pods of dolphins. And, Absolutely, and they're, they're yeah. Kind of, like like looking at you. And, <laughs> That's 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 great. I I I saw them quite often where when out shark fishing, you know, a couple of years ago, I was absolutely mad about blue shark fishing, and like you like you mentioned, um, that was really part of the tagging program when a fish was measured and tagged and and, yeah. and so on. And speaking about tagging, uh, program, there's also going on a tagging program for sea bass to tag sea bass, and and even my my friend, uh. One of the fish that was tagged by him was then recaptured uh, somewhere else. So that's obviously, you cool, know, always, yeah. always get a great kick out of that. Um, but just just briefly touching on the on the on the on the tagging program, I, I I know that this is scientific gathering scientific data, right? That's that's important. Mm -hmm. And in case of sharks, I probably you know I didn't have a much problem with that because the, the shark, you know. What you were doing, how you how you were handling shark on the boat was really not much different. But actually, I had a huge issue with 
bass tagging program so obviously i'm i'm very aware of of bass being fish slow growing and so on and you need to handle the fish carefully and return to the water as soon as possible and so on and that tagging it was just you had a whole kit and you had to keep the fish out of the water and you have to remove the scales from certain point and then measure and then weigh and then put the tag in and you have to hold that kit so the fish effectively was three times longer out of the water because because you were trying to do all these things to the fish and 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 actually i i probably had like a one or two sessions with with tagging fish and my friend was doing it a little bit longer and then I said, like, yeah. have you, have you doing that? I said, no, I gave up on that. It's completely not practical. It's something else when you have a, when you have a, like a, like a pistol, or like a, like a machine to, yeah. to put a tag in. When you have a fish, you put a tag in, you release the fish. That's fine. Okay. And then later on, like in case of sharks, because those tags are kind of in a batch, you know, what's the number you don't have to right from the number well in this case you have this thing you need to load in the pistol and remove the like oh my god it's like so so just gave up <laughs> especially when you're you know when you're fishing for bass you quite often waist deep in the water in the waders mm -hmm. right and because the beach quite often kind of gently slopes in you quite away right yeah. so you have to wade back for 30 minutes dragging fish on the line with you to the place when you can actually, you know, kind of get your kid out and do all these things. So, so I, I, we were it sounds more complicated than some tagging programs that I've heard of, but, um, I yeah. think the, the thing with, I suppose the tagging is, is such an expensive program to be running really? that scientists that would be involved in those would be really, I suppose, really aware of the, the impact on the fish, because if, if the tag is going to have a detrimental impact on the fish then it mm -hmm. sort of wastes the tag really so yeah yeah so the, there's a lot that's of a good, thought a, put into the process that they do point. so I, i'm not personally familiar with the the mm -hmm. bass tagging process mm -hmm. so i wouldn't have mm -hmm. personal experience of it so i can't really speak on that point mm -hmm. but i i know from speaking to other people who have been looking at, at tagging programs particularly the, the gps tags like mm -hmm. the the cost is just so great and to secure oh, no, that funding that yeah, yeah because that the device, to... device itself is, is quite exactly, expensive yeah. versus so like it, a piece of plastic it has to be a really well thought out process before they ever even put a tag in the fish so that mm -hmm. <laughs> they're, yeah, they're not yeah, wasting all the, yeah. the funding but the gps have. tagging program is much better because you tag the fish and you you can start gathering data yeah while in yeah. all the tagging where it's it's really like a plastic tag yeah you really need to recapture to re the fish yeah, to recapture to the fish and and that information it does give you sort of analysis that you can do on that kind of information is where the fish was first caught how much longer it was before it was recaptured and mm -hmm. things like that can um uh, inform uh, like population studies mm -hmm. um but yeah that's uh, wouldn't be my area of expertise i think so oh, well i, <laughs> I, I think you provided a lot of expertise anyway uh <laughs> here for for us um listen so let's talk about safaris like a snorkeling safaris yes. like let's, let's this is this is activity that that people can can also take part in absolutely yes yeah. so we do snorkeling trips uh which are guided snorkeling trips and um, we can do those all around the coast really so we're based in waterville uh, our closest beach that we really like to run off is balance Gaddigs, mm -hmm. but we also do them all around Kells, um, out as far as White Strand and Castle Cove. We've run mm -hmm. them. So it really depends on where people are that are getting in touch, what they're looking for. 
for us, we love to take you out on your local beach. You know, it's that yeah. idea of getting you connected with the place that's close to you, with it's the place that great. means something to you. So to take you out somewhere you're familiar with and hopefully show you something new or, you know, help you experience it in a new way mm. would, would be the goal there. Yeah. And you, you, you provide all the equipment. All, all the, the gear, equipment. All yep. The... So we've got and the wetsuits, snorkels, fins, everything. And what sort of preparation is required for so, somebody who wanted to you need to be able to swim or at least be confident in the water and mm-hmm. uh, we can provide flotation devices for people who think they might not be particularly strong swimmers oh. um but outside of that you just you just come along and give it a go basically oh really so yeah. there's not even like a like a uh, day in the uh, at the pool to, to, no to no we'll do we'll do an introduction we start nice and shallow in the water so people can always put their feet down if they want to get comfortable give them a chance to get comfortable with the mask and the snorkel and, mm-hmm. and how they're going. We find most people these days would have already done some kind of snorkeling. So a lot mm-hmm. of the time you're, you're dealing with people who already have experience of having the mask on and using the snorkel. Right. But if they haven't, we're more than happy to take our time, give you the time to get mm-hmm. used to the equipment, have a little go first, you know, test test the waters. So and are they, are they starting from the beach or they're starting from the boat? You're taking from them the, on the boat? From the beach. So we do okay. it off the shore. Yeah. So, okay, so okay. you're, like I said, you're in shallow water to start off with so you've mm-hmm. got plenty of time to get comfortable and get used to it before you're going anywhere where you right and what sort of what sort of animals and and what sort of uh, uh views people can can see when they go into oh that? really really lovely views of like kelp forests um uh, lots of lovely anemones starfish mm-hmm. um lots of like inshore fish that you'd see little blennies and pollock and things like that yeah mm. really really amazing assemblages i think is, is and do you have really this great. reaction like oh gee, I a never... lot of people do yeah because we get this sort of um I suppose it's a disconnect and, and people, they go on holidays somewhere nice and warm and sunny and they're more than happy to get in the water and, you know, they've seen all the coral we fish in all the world and then they yeah. come back and they don't expect really to see anything in the water here because it's yeah. so cold and in their heads that means nothing really lives here. And then they get in the water and they're like, oh my God, I can't believe there's so much stuff here. I can't mm-hmm. believe the colors and can't believe how many different animals we saw. And it's really lovely actually to sort of be involved in that moment for people where they're suddenly going wow it's all here you know yeah. so yeah, that, yeah that's really beautiful it's really nice to share that with people so i think that's a, a big part of, of what's special for me about sea synergy is that i grew up in Cardano, which is like just over the hill from waterville so mm-hmm. it's my local area that i'm, I'm bringing people out in and, and experiencing with them for the first time sometimes and yeah. it's really amazing for me to think back of when i was a kid and someone first lifted a piece of seaweed and i saw a starfish for the first time and i'm getting to do that for people now and go wow look you can find these animals here and then to get to tell them a little bit about their life history and you know the way they feed or the way they move and different different little facts like that that they're going oh my god this whole world is happening out here that we had no idea about yes so that's that's, that's, really that's cool. huge that's huge you know i was i was i was shocked uh at the time where where i was doing shark fishing obviously i had you know all those photos of sharks and um my friend was talking to to her friend who was a teacher at school uh, about the sharks and and say like no no there's no sharks here and like no look at this those photos like i don't know these are like a you know fake photos there's no sharks here it's like geez it's like she's a teacher at yeah. school right and <laughs> like well, like, how how come it's no sharks? Let's yeah. look, look at that. It's, it's like the hidden side of Ireland for a lot of people. They, they yeah. see the lovely mountains and the views and the, the lakes and rivers, yeah. and they forget that we're an island. You know, we've got 
Atlantic what a Ocean huge people. Huge coastline with amazing seas around us, and and there's so much to be found out there. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Your 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 touch just uh, just want to go back a little bit to the to sea mammals and 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 dolphins yeah. and 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 uh, whales. Is it true that there is much more uh, occurrence of of uh, stranding? I, I suppose that's a, that's a, that's the word where the where the uh, uh, whales or 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 dolphins are are washed ashore or they're just just stranded and still alive. It's like, is, is do you see the increase in in these events? So the the Irish whale and dolphin group have been running a strandings program for I don't know how many years. I know the Irish whale and dolphin group have been active for over thirty years. Mm-hmm. Um, and they record the strandings. They have uh, volunteers that will actually visit stranding sites and measure, identify, and take a, a DNA sample from the stranded animals, like mm-hmm. the obviously dead stranded animals. The live stranded animals would obviously try and refloat. Um, so they're building up a database of what's happening, and we have seen an increase. So it's right. it's not something that I could really comment on and say what are the causes or, or what's happening or where they're coming from. But I know that in, in recent years, the people have made comments in that, in that the numbers have been increasing of these animals that are stranding. Right, right. Okay, you you mentioned that you cannot comment on the on the yeah, I just, not, so it's just a ask, it's just a, a lack of knowledge on my behalf. Mm-hmm. Like I I've seen the the reports from the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group as to the numbers that yeah. are stranding. So yeah, there's a, there's but an I think increase, there is there's no no one answer. The, yeah, I think I think that's may, it. Maybe that it's plastic. Maybe it's a pollution. Maybe it's, plastic, maybe it's maybe super it's trollers. Could be you know it could be sound in the ocean and that we're doing so much exploration for oil that it's so noisy out there. It's disorientating them. There's several reasons that it could be but I don't think there's definitive research on exactly what has happened unless there's an autopsy in the animal and you can obviously see that I mean I know that there was whales found with so many plastic bags and you know there's no way they could have survived and that's obviously the reason that whale has ended up stranding and then passed away so for individuals you can find a cause but I think in in general overall it would be hard to point your finger at at so 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 I, I have a question now when I think about it is it like when the whale dies of the natural causes is it unnatural for this whale be washed ashore therefore you really not see dead whales on shore because they die on the open ocean and that's like or it it totally depends on where they are when they've passed away so just because they're like the body composition they'll float for a while until they sink so, so naturally, if they were out in the open ocean, they'd eventually sink and they become a really important food source for the yeah. um, the bottom living, bottom feeding animals. Yeah. Yeah. If they're close to the shore or if there's a storm or a current that's going to pull them in towards the shore, I mean, there's no reason that they wouldn't die of natural causes and end up stranding. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the increase that we're seeing obviously has some kind of, you know, hu- human cause. It's not on the natural causes yeah. and that's, that's yeah. why. And are there often occurring like a stranding of the of the living animals so they kind of get disorientated and stranding on the beach or, or is it mainly a, a mainly lot of circumstances dead? where there's live strandings the animals themselves are actually sick or not well and so even though they are refloated they eventually don't survive and they will restrand yeah, um, yeah i heard that actually yeah I think I think that that's normally well not normally but that's a lot of the cases that's what you would see happening um i think natural strandings I don't think it's normal for a whale or dolphin to just strand itself. So yeah. normally there is yeah, some probably. kind of problem happening with that yeah. individual. Yeah. yeah, yeah. What about basking sharks? Are you, are you talking about the basking sharks, the people as well, and taking them, watching them? 
Uh, yeah, so we do a trip to the Bull Rock. We use a, a local provider called, uh, what is it, Skelly Coast Discovery. Right. Um, so it's one of my neighbors, actually, down in Caradaniel. He's got mm-hmm. a, a rib, and we organize boat trips and offer uh, wildlife trips out. Um, he does them every day, and with Sea Synergy, we'll try and get a guide on there maybe once a month or so and, and head out with him uh, and offer a guided tour. So he heads out across the Kenmare Bay uh, over to Bull Rock. Um, and around the, the coast of West Cork there on the Bear Peninsula. Sure. Um, he did tell me that he started stopping over for lunch in one of the little villages there before he heads back. So I would <laughs> highly recommend a trip out with that Des. Yeah, yeah. I was really lucky actually last week. Um, he invited me out on, on a morning. He was going out with uh, Peter Cox, who's a photographer. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to photograph sunrise through the, the channel, through the Bull Rock. Right. Uh, so I just went out to sort of help out on the day. Mm-hmm. It was absolutely beautiful. The the 4 a.m. start wasn't quite beautiful. But, mm-hmm. <laughs> but once we got out there and saw the sunrise and oh, it was absolutely amazing. Yeah, that's, uh, fantastic that's, experience. That's, that's great. I, I, I think like so overall, you know, what's your what's your view? Is the overall state of the environment and especially coastal environment, is it deteriorating? Is it roughly the same and like how how does it look you know obviously you're doing that for many years so yeah. I, I think with regards things like plastic pollution you can see an obvious deterioration when when i was a kid you'd build sandcastles and decorate them with shells and seaweed and now you see kids building sandcastles and they're decorating them with crisp packets and you know plastic bottle taps and things like that so I mean, so there, there's obvious, there's obviously been a change. And, and I think that's something that people are very aware of now. And I think there's a lot of work, particularly in Ireland. We're really lucky that we have clean coasts and we run a lot of beach cleans through them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a big sort of community effort to tidy places up. Yeah. I think the, the vastness of the problem is is the big issue. And, and how do we actually make an impact on, on a global scale? Yes. But I think sort of within our local communities we're really aware and we're really taking action to change that so it is sort of uh, almost we're starting to push back against it now so we're seeing it sort of turn oh, a is little that what bit. you see yeah so a lot oh. of the beaches that i'd go to in particularly in my local areas people have already done a beach clean or you know we right. go to do a beach clean and we only get a couple of bags and when we take them up mm-hmm. to the designated drop-off point we're finding yeah. that someone has already done a beach clean there and there's a yeah. few bags already collected so it's sort of uplifting to see that there's that community yeah. effort starting to occur, which which is what's needed really all yeah. around our coastlines. And and what in terms of of biodiversity and a and a you know like a sure count of 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 species or you know specimens of. So we're we're seeing mostly the changes with the the species that we're seeing are reductions in some species, but also an expansion of distribution. So we've got a a situation where species that would be more common in warmer waters further south are their distribution is moving further north. And this has been recorded over the last, I think it's almost fifteen to twenty years now that the these sort of changes. Is it with warming of the of the waters? Yeah, exactly. It's it's due to the warming of the waters. So. Along with the, the southerly species starting to encroach a little bit further north, mm-hmm. the species that we would commonly have here that would prefer colder waters are then slowly moving their distributions a little bit north as well That's to follow the colder waters. So, very interesting. Yeah, there, there's a lot of research in that area. So it's, it's something you can look into more and discover sure, a lot about. Sure, yeah. sure. So, so when, when, it's, when, it's species, when a particular species is not so common as it used to be, 
that might mean that it's just the distribution is changing and, and their non, nor, northern range is, is yeah, expanding. It's, it's entirely possible, yeah, for, for oh, some species that, that could be the case. I mean, obviously, then you have the issues with, like we talked about earlier, the, the overfishing problem. And mm -hmm. that's not a species distribution issue. Yeah. That That's a population crash due to a, an impact that we're having. Um, but yeah, for some of the species that you'd record around rock pools, I know that when I was a kid, you'd very rarely see um, snake locks and enemies, whereas mm -hmm. now you're starting to see them everywhere. You know, there's a lot more of them. So yeah. there are species that are known to sort of move a little yeah, bit due to yeah. the warming. And conditions. is it the same thing with the with the uh, uh, the jellyfish, the the lion's mane, the yeah, uh, so the man o' war, which is not jellyfish. It's it's I think it's a mollusk or what what is this? Oh, I can't remember the name of it now. <laughs> it's um, it's a, a group of animals that choose to live together. I'd have to Google. Oh yes, yes, though. you're right, you're right, you're right. No, I can't remember. Well, the name. that, that doesn't. That is, uh, this is this is exactly what's happening. Their northern range is yeah. Is, so is we, moving. we've started to see them off the coastlines around Ireland, um, and washing up on our beaches, really around yeah. around the coast here, around Kerry, particularly. Um, I know down in Derrynane, we had a lot of them wash up uh, last summer, sort of late summer. Yeah. And um, we've ha already had reports of lion's mane's jellyfish around the coastal waters yeah. here, so they're definitely something to look out for. Because they give you a pretty yeah. nasty stick. Yeah. And as a as a you know kind of operator of of tours for people, are you are you are you guys worried at all about that? It is a concern, absolutely. If you're getting people out into the water, you, you need to know what you're going to come up against. You know, you need mm -hmm. to know what you're going to find out there to just to be able to inform people, but also to keep people safe. Yeah. Um. So in the case of the jellyfish, particularly the the Portuguese man of war, in the water they're very difficult to see. Uh, and also the lion's mane's jellyfish. I mean, they're much darker, so they're easier to spot, but mm -hmm. they give you quite a quite a bad sting. So you'd want mm -hmm. to be very aware of if they're being spotted in the area, we'd normally try and scope out first. Are they on the beach okay. or where are they? And what do we need to be cautious of? Because, it, you know, it's it's just not fair to be taking people out yeah. in this situation where they're not going to enjoy themselves. Okay, so you're doing yeah. this extra step of kind of scouting and saying like, okay. Yeah, and, and there's a really good, so the, the Big Jellyfish Hunt is a Facebook page where people send mm -hmm. in reports of where they're spotting these jellyfish. So normally okay. if there's something unusual showing up, that'll actually, so you kind of moni that feed, monitoring, like, monitoring. Yeah, that, it kind of keeps you updated with, oh, someone spotted it further, you know, around West Cork, possibly we'll be seeing them around here as well. It's just yeah. something in the back of your mind to be aware of when you have people out in the water sure sure yeah ellie listen i think that what you guys are doing is absolutely fantastic it's absolutely super important and and this is this is the only way to actually make a difference to get people involved get people excited awesome. about it yet uh you know that's you know then true education kind of naturally get more allies and like you said in, instead yeah. of instead of trying to brainwash people and and kind of push you know down the throat the agenda it's like well no look just just look just, at it for yeah, yourself just and, and enjoy it i think and and, the way to do and it. then you i think that everybody have enough you know uh brain power is like well you know how yeah. how how am i gonna protect that like i would like yeah. this to be here for in 20 years so i think it's it's, it's super great. important we're, we're really lucky as well with, with the the sort of um the community that we work in i think there's a there's a lot of ngos that operate around ireland or social enterprises that are working with the same agenda just trying to inform people and raise awareness um i'm at this week i'm actually up in truly because i'm working on a continuous professional development course for primary school teachers 
that's funded by the Marine Institute. Great. Runs... So they know that there are sharks in the water. Yeah, so they know now. Wow, <laughs> yeah, it's great. so it, it runs with the Marine Explorers program that, that we operate for all of the primary schools in Kerry. So you basically send in an application and we've got four different modules that we can visit your school with. Mm-hmm. So it's all about increasing ocean literacy within the primary schools. So that's really giving us a good baseline to work with. And yeah. we find a lot of our local kids will have visited in school and then they come to us in the summer and, you know, we're slowly starting to see that they're, they're learning more than we do now. You know, they're asking us questions that we don't know the answer to. And it's fantastic because they're getting so engaged in, in what's going on in the ocean and things yeah. that they can find. So the next generations are, are, Absolutely. are yeah, more they're, aware. They're stepping and, up. and like you said, the long term plan, the long term action is, is the only one that, that, that really can, can, can yeah, make an yeah, impact. Yeah, I think so. Ne- needs to make a change. And we're, we're all getting there, Absolutely. I think. Ellie, listen, for our listeners, how they can get in touch and, and how, how they can find you and, and uh, how they can, you know, Yes, uh, so we, we have a website, uh, www.csynergy.org. And you can contact us through there. We have a lot of our activities up there and there's an online booking system. Um, you can also email me at csynergy at gmail.com or you can call us as well. Our numbers are on all the leaflets around the website. Give us a call if you're in the area and you want to drop in. Mm-hmm. And, and we're gonna put it. And we're gonna put it. Put the links uh, into the show notes as well. So fantastic! I'll just do a quick shout out at the end for yes, our, our new activities. So we have amazing eco tours starting on Look Quran, where we're taking you out on paddle boards or kayaking. So it's mm-hmm. going to be a guided eco tour, and you'll get to explore the lake. Um, and learn a little bit about the ecology of the area, but basically have loads of fun because paddleboarding is awesome. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, come and definitely come and try that out. If you're actually, down in Waterville. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's. I actually had a had a guest on the, on a podcast where we were talking about various types of surfing and paddleboarding and like kind of exploring between the. Uh, islands it's, 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 it's good yeah it's the, amazing and, and on the the lake where we are it's it's really fantastic because there's not a lot of fishing going on on, on the lower end of the lake so mm-hmm. a lot of the time we're out there we're actually the only people out on the lake and you've got this amazing vista of you know the McKillicuddy Reeks behind you and then we can follow the river down towards where it enters the sea so you can see the little bridge coming out of Waterville and you get to see all the reed beds and everything like that so it's really special actually I, I was surprised at how much I learned when we first went out there right Yeah, because I would have been on the lake just in a boat, sort of in the mm-hmm. more northerly end. So it's really amazing spot. It kind yeah. of gives you a different perspective, right? Absolutely, you, you, you're yeah. Kind of looking from different Changing angles. Changing your view, yeah, absolutely. You're looking at things from a different angle. You suddenly realize that you know, wow, these mountains are really big, and the size of the lake as well. When you've got a paddle across it, it mm-hmm. really changes your mind about how quick it is to drive around in a car. You know? Oh yeah, oh definitely, yeah. definitely. You need to use your use your own muscle. Yeah, and exactly. and and people can can also find that on the website that you. Absolutely, yep. So that's all up on the website. And as I said before, we're more than happy for you to give us a call or send us an email and we'll answer all your questions. Absolutely. And and like I said, we're going to put uh, put all the email and, uh, and a website on the show notes. Ellie, thanks very much for doing this. It was great fun. Thank you, Tommy. It's been great. Thank you. And that was another episode of Tommy's Outdoors Podcast. If you haven't done so yet, subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or any other platform where you're aggregating your podcasts. Also, you can follow us on Twitter at Outdoors Podcast, and you can follow us on Instagram at Tommy's Outdoors, and like us on Facebook at Tommy's Outdoors. So, that's it for today. Until the next time.